until we identify the thing that is greater than the fear and also the fear that is keeping us stuck, we just sit and spin. Hello, this is Tom and you're listening to the Ideas Inspire Action Podcast. This is a podcast about how to make things happen and turn ideas into reality. My guest today is the amazing Erika Gerdes, or how I would say Erika Gerdes, as she has some German ancestry, as she told me. Erika is an authenticity advocate, speaker, coach and writer. She is the designer of the art of undoing, which helps people undo their limiting beliefs to unlock greater confidence, joy and impact. She is also a former global executive at Google, where she worked for 12 years before leaving at the height of her career as a single mom to pursue her mission for helping people live into their full range and amplify their impact. Welcome, Erica. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So... Tell me about your journey getting into Google. Well, I would say my journey probably starts there, to be honest with you. But I went to undergraduate and then graduate school, got degrees in communication, which was what I loved. And what I discovered as I finished my schooling is that I had a lot of skills, but no training. So I had no idea what I was actually going to do with myself after I um, graduated. I spent one year at an aerospace firm, had completely no idea what I was doing, and then moved to California from Wisconsin with my boyfriend at the time. Yeah. And when I discovered that I was moving to California to follow him, uh, I when I discovered that we were going to be living by Google, I became completely obsessed with the idea of working there. I mean, while I was sitting in Wisconsin at 24 years old in my little house, I literally spent hours and hours and hours pouring over the Google website because I couldn't get over how it looked like adult daycare. I mean, these are people that are wearing backpacks at work and um, they're wearing sandals and they're carrying are uh, they're you know carrying their bikes around with them and they're sitting on colorful exercise balls and I couldn't fathom the idea of working there where I was working we were lucky to get I'm not even joking flavored tea bags in our cuff in our cafe so to think of this place where I could go and be old compared to the people I was working with um, was just completely amazing. But at the time I read that they they got around a thousand resumes a day. So I thought, well, there's no way I'm never going to get a job there. I had a 4.0 for my graduate program, 3.97 in my undergraduate. I had so many degrees and I completely believed that there was no way I could get a job because I didn't have any engineering courses or um, business background or any of that. So I moved to California. I spent four months desperately looking for a job, applying all over the Bay Area. I never applied to Google because I never thought I would get in. And finally, four months in, my savings were running out. My um, patience was completely gone. And so I started applying to anonymous Craigslist ads. So at the time, this is 2006, Craigslist was it was still sketchy even then to do anonymous listings. <laughs> and I thought, what do I have to lose? I mean, my other option was going to work for Jenny Craig, which is weight loss facility. And I didn't want to do that. So I started applying to these anonymous Craigslist ads. And the one that I, I remember specifically applying to one that was for an anonymous internet powerhouse. But because I was living in the Bay Area, that could have been three people in a garage for all I knew. I had no idea. So I applied. Um, several days later, a recruiter called, and that was possibly my very first callback I'd even gotten from the four months of applying all over the Bay Area. And the recruiter said, this is a this is um, a call from the anonymous Craigslist ad. It's for Google. And I said, what, like, I would be a contractor? This, what would I be like, a, what would I be doing? She was like, no, you would be a Google employee. And I literally almost fell out of my chair at the time because I couldn't believe it. Um, so I went through the whole interview process and it's not nearly, or at least it wasn't nearly as bad as I had made up in my mind or read all over the internet. And when I, the day I got the job, uh, they called me and I literally had to pull over because I couldn't see straight because I was hyperventilating <laughs> because they were offering me a job and it wasn't just any job to work at Google. It was a job higher than the one that I had applied for. So here I was thinking that there was no way I would ever get a job at Google, not even applying to Google, getting in at Google at a higher level than I actually had been being considered for. And so that is how I, I 
got my job and I started by approving the ads that we had to manually approve the ads that you saw on google.com at the time. So I'm sitting next to um, all of these kids that had gone to Harvard and Brown and Yale and Stanford and we're all manually approving three line ads, <laughs> which felt like a terrible use of our education, but um, it was it was fine. They did eventually turn that into an automated process, um, but I absolutely loved my time at Google even then, and it really was better than adult daycare. <laughs> and how was the interview? What like was it as crazy? You mentioned it briefly, uh, as people are saying, or did you get lucky? Did you did you rock the interview and you just had this great day where you're like yes, I smashed it. No way they don't give me the job. Oh no, I have a long line of limiting beliefs that make me believe that I am not going to get a job no matter how qualified I think I am. Obviously, I never even applied to Google. Um, the interviews weren't nearly as bad. You know, it, when I read the um, all of the articles about it, everybody said there are going to be all these uh, questions like how many golf balls fit inside an office building or whatever. And I, there was no way I was going to be able to answer that kind of stuff. I didn't get any of those questions. I was working, I was applying for and then working in the ad sales side of the business. But I will say that in the 12 years I was there, there was a time where we did ask some trickier questions. There was never anything like the stuff that I read on the internet like the, you know, how many taxi cabs work in New York in one hour or how many tips did they get? Like we've read all these, you know, silly questions. Maybe that is a good marketing by Google. Yeah, well, something. But um, it, no, I don't think I got lucky. I, I didn't give myself enough credit for, I am actually a pretty good interviewer um, or interviewee, I guess. I've gotten a lot of jobs that are higher than the ones I apply for. But I didn't know that. I couldn't see that. I, I literally just thought I was getting lucky. It wasn't until much later that I realized, oh, I'm actually probably pretty good at this. Um, so it really, it was scary. The The hardest part was they actually have give you tests or they did at the time. They were giving us tests. So I had to take tests and go in for interviews. So you know how to rock an interview. What did you do working 12 years at Google? And what do you think made you successful there? So like I said, The entire time I was there, I worked in the ad sales side of the business. So when I first started, it was applying the, or I'm sorry, approving the ads and then answering the chat support, customer support, you know, when you uh, call in for customer support or chat in for customer support, wherever I was doing that, I was on the other side of it. And then I was on the other side of the 866 line. So I was answering, you know, when small advertisers would call with questions. Um, and I will say that actually was one of my two favorite jobs that I had the entire time I was there because I loved being able to help somebody that called and was confused or angry and automatically expecting that they were going to get somebody who didn't care and didn't really want to help. And here I was, I really genuinely cared and I genuinely wanted to help them. And to be able to take information that I knew and help empower them to make a different decision in their business was so exciting and gratifying for me. I had taught college courses when I was in graduate school, and it was an extension of that. I was being able to be a part of these light bulb moments, and I loved that. And then I continued, I sort of continued growing up inside of Google and um, went on to lead big partnerships with Google. The last job I had, I was actually overseeing the global strategic partnership with one of Google's largest global partners. So basically I was that company at Google and I was Google at that company and it was a global huge company. Um, so it was a very exciting role to have. I got to go all over the world. I was having all kinds of executive meetings and running really major strategic projects and growing the business and making an impact. And I absolutely loved it. And what made me successful at it, I didn't really realize until much, much later, it was how passionate I was about helping people. And it took me a long time to realize that that's what made me stand out. And it wasn't in comparison to other Googlers. It was just in general, because I really genuinely cared about doing good work and making an impact. And that was actually what helped me realize that I could be successful at the next thing that I wanted to do, which I was much more like called to do. Because if I could get passionate about helping people improve their businesses, I, I couldn't even fathom how much excitement and passion I was going to have for helping people change their lives. <laughs> 
So it was my emotion, to be honest, <laughs> that made me really successful in the business world, which is what most people think, you know, needs there needs to be a clear line between the two. And I absolutely disagree. Was there one memorable training at Google that helped you throughout your career? There was one, well, I mean, Google does a lot of really amazing training. I mean, it really is. I didn't leave because I didn't love the company. I absolutely, and you'll probably hear me say we, because I consider myself having graduated from there, not left. So it's still we to me, um, even though I've been gone a year and a half. Uh, so they really do um, treat their employees incredibly well, give us them tons of amazing opportunities um, for education, for growth, personal and professional. There's a particular training that was called Magic Academy. I don't think I'm not allowed to say that. Um, and what it does is it's a two-day in-depth training to help uh, employees really think differently about creating learning environments. And the way they do that is by creating a different learning environment for the actual learning. And so you sort of learn immersively um, and it's all about changing the conversation. It's really coaching, to be honest. I didn't know it at the time until I actually went through my own coaching program. They're teaching you coaching in the space of how to coach through um, business meetings and client conversations and things like that. And it's all about um, active listening and brainstorming and how we think and how we should be. We can be thinking differently. And it is really, truly magical because it really gets you not just thinking differently, but acting differently. And since you are very focused on the action piece, people came out of these trainings truly feeling shifted and transformed, being able to have different impact in the business meetings that they were leading. And so that was a really, really cool training to be a part of. What made you leave Google then after 12 years? It is not linear. Uh, I will say that what made me decide that I had to change my life, which then ultimately led to me leaving Google, was that I, when my second daughter was born, we discovered that she had a tumor on her spinal cord when she was two weeks old. When she was three months old, okay. yeah. That was, I mean, I had lived my entire life basically trying to build a picture-perfect life and always doing what I thought I should do and becoming who I thought I was supposed to be. And so when I was, when she was three months old, she had to have spinal neurosurgery. And that was about as far off of any plan that I had ever imagined in my brain that I could even fathom. And so I, as I sat in the hospital with her, as she is recovering from this seven hour neurosurgery where they, you know, opened up half of her back. So is she fine now? She will have to have another, a series of surgeries over her life. Okay. And she is, she is fine in that she walks and she is a completely thriving little girl. And we're looking at, she has to go in for another MRI this week to discover the next time she has to have another neurosurgery. Um, what it is, is it's a fatty tumor that is um, on her spinal cord. And because she had her first operation when she was so little, they couldn't get it off. And so it adhered itself to her, um, her vertebrae. And now it has re-adhered itself. And so it, you know, can have pretty significant impact on her. Thankfully, so far, we haven't had that. And we're lucky enough to have amazing hospitals in the area and insurance that supports us getting the surgery that she needs. At the time, after her surgery, she was fine. Um, and they had, they had gotten, you know, some of the most significant impact taken care of. But while I was in the hospital with her, she was sitting in the in the bed, you know, I was listening to her breathing hard and all this stuff from having recovered or going through the recovery. And all of a sudden I had this thought that I really, and I started to realize I don't like my life. I don't like this beautiful life I have created. And what am I waiting for? And I, the thought, this thought changed my life. It was, I have one life to live. There are no second chances, no do-overs. I have one go round at this life. Why would I spend one more minute waiting to be happy? And it was in that moment that I realized I really was waiting for my life to start. I was 33 years old and I was, didn't know when my, like the, my real life where I felt happy was going to start. And so as a result of that thought, I began systematically looking at the things that I was not happy in my life with and making changes. And that started with my marriage. And I got divorced a few years after that time, that time. A few years is like two years or, or five years? Two, two, it was two years. So I, um, I asked my husband for a divorce almost exactly a year 
no, what was it? Uh, a year after her hospital, she was in the hospital, a, a year and three months. And then it took us about a year and a half to get, actually get divorced. We lived in the same house separated for a year and a half, which was very hard. Um, but when we got divorced, because I had gone through this process of tr not trying to rush through it and really allowing myself to experience the you know, the sadness and the emotions that were involved with it, but really believing that I didn't have to choose between my happiness and my children's, that I could actually have a life that gave me both. When I got through on the other side, and that really did become true, that I got divorced in a totally different way than other people had. Um, when a few years after that, I realized I, I don't, I'm not passionate about the work I'm doing. I realized, oh my gosh, I did this before. I had these, I had had this belief that I had to choose. And then I realized I didn't have to choose. And now what I was trying to work out was I didn't have to choose between success and fulfillment, where previously it had been, I didn't have to choose between ha my happiness and my children's. And so the divorce empowered me to leave my job. What do you think held you back before? What do you think was it, was that moment missing where you felt like, oh, I really only have one life. Um, was that not clear enough to you? Did you want to like um, uh, ha have, a, have a presentable life towards others, um, but then deciding things can go down so quickly? Why not make the most out of my life the way how I would like to be? What, what held you back before? Do you, can you put that into words? Well, for a really long time, I had no idea who I was or what I wanted or the impact I wanted to have in the world. Once, when I started going through the process of my divorce, I started realizing who I was. And then I had to figure out what I wanted. And I did that by really allowing myself to lean into things that felt good as opposed to looked good, which was that what held me back was that one, I didn't know what I wanted. And two, I had no idea how to go about figuring out what it was. Yeah. And that's what I find is true for so many people. I ask most people, what do you want? And they look at me like, why is it such yeah. a hard question to answer? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I like to ask the questions, what would you do if you would earn, well, depending on where you live, yeah. let's say here in Europe, in my area, 5,000 euro after tax until the end of your life, what would you do? With you, and then you 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 think about oh what would I actually do and then maybe you can turn that into making money as well so that you can live. Well, and for me the I mean there were so many things that held me back. First, it was I don't even know how to answer the question what would I do. And then once I started mm -hmm. being able to potentially answer that a little bit, um, which I. I say is, you know, really about allowing yourself to dream than it was, but there's no way I can make any money doing that. There's no way I can be sustainable. If I take this risk and I consider leaving Google, I may be putting my children at risk. I may lose my house. I'm going to, I'm going to end up under a bridge. <laughs> I won't, my kids can't go to college. There's all these, the other thing is I love my lifestyle too much to give it up. Like that is what I thought. And that is what literally everybody says and also leaving google i feel like okay if you leave, uh, leave the average company where you feel like mm, i work in this cubicle office type thing i'm not so happy as i don't know whatever your uh, your job is there uh, but then leaving google which is supposed to be one of the best employers uh, in the world that is probably even a more difficult step uh, i believe well absolutely i mean you know i will say that for a lot of years when i first started at google I actually didn't pay that much attention to, you know, it, when they do the sort of the employee orientation, there's all the stock vesting schedule trainings and all that kind of stuff. I didn't even pay attention because I literally in my mind said, well, I probably won't be here for four years. So I don't really need to know how the vesting schedule looks. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later and I was still there. Thankfully, I did have plenty of stocks that vested and all of that. I didn't actually, <laughs> I didn't ruin my chances there, but at the same time, for the majority of the time that I worked there, I always said, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And that was a problem because I was grown up and it, it, no matter what I did or how high I climbed, it still never felt like it was my career. I sort of felt like I was playing house or like I was going through the motions. And I just, I kept hoping that I would, whatever decision I would make next would, would feel right. And it never quite did. And then because I had been going through all of this personal work, um, 
it really was kind of a culmination of a number of things that all came together. Um, can you name a, can you name a few things? Like, did you listen? Uh, did you read a certain book or a certain yeah. group of books or YouTube podcast? Yeah. Talk to a specific person. Well, so uh, yes, that's right. You like all the action steps. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> no, it's more like I can. I, so when uh, I like those things where I can where I can actually know what yeah, you steps. were doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah so okay. the. The very first thing I did was I got honest with myself. And that is the hardest step for a lot of people because it is much easier for us to tell ourselves, just be okay with okay. Just survive. You're fine. Get over this. It's first world problems. We don't need, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. If I go after this, what am I risking? Am I willing to risk losing it all? What if I get there and it's not any better? So we don't even ask ourselves the question because we don't want to look in that closet because there's some part of us that believes that if we look in that closet, it'll be too painful or that we'll get overwhelmed. And so we just don't. We just pretend it's not there. So the literally number one question is, um, what do I really want? And at like go starting to dream about it. I always say dream and then plan. Most of us are living our lives by planning and then dreaming. We're sort of looking around at what are the three things I can choose between and how big can I take make my life based on those three as opposed to saying, what do I really want my life to look like? And then the plans start to fall into place. And so that's truly step one. Um, And then what I, specific to my job, so once I started really dreaming and getting honest with what do I truly want, then I started asking myself, well, you know, what, what, how could I add any value to this? So what I truly wanted is I wanted to make an impact in the world. I wanted to help people change their lives. And then I had to ask myself, but how in the world can I do that? Who am I to do these things? Did you did you never did you never think? Well, I'm working at Google. Google is a great company. Therefore, I'm changing lives. Oh, I had used that excuse for the 10 years first because um, we there's a little mantra that we all would joke about because I was not the only one who felt this way. It's we're making the money that fund the projects that change the world. I wanted to get closer to actually changing the world, and mm -hmm. it, because it, it, I felt like. I just wanted to, I wanted to be able to go back to that place of seeing the transformation in people's lives yeah. um, and kind of being a part of that light bulb moment, that aha moment. Um, one of the hardest parts for me was actually beginning to own my gifts, the things that I could use to make an impact and serve the greatest good. And so the second step I will say for, for that I use for people, so going back to your action steps, is what are my gifts? Because most of us are much better at, at talking about what we're not good at than what we are good at. We're most of the time spending the majority of our time trying to um, make up for what we feel we lack as opposed to amplifying who we are. And that was hard even inside my head. I, it was hard for me to be willing to say, I'm really good at X because in my mind I was going, but what if that's not true? What if I'm completely deluded in thinking this? Isn't this narcissistic to be thinking about gifts? When I was able to get over that though and start to um, really see the things that came easily to me and not to other people, the stuff that I continually would get recognized for, it gave me so much more confidence. What What are those things you mentioned earlier? You like to help people. Can you like can you list a couple? Yeah. So for me. Um, The first thing, what, what I, it kind of started with skills for me. Um, and one of the things that I love the most that comes very easily for me is public speaking. I absolutely love it. It is my art form and I, it is where I feel most alive. And so that is top of my list because that's something that most people are terrified of. I mean, most people fear public speaking more than death. So I, I put Especially that- Especially the developers at Google. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people. But then it was also, uh, so for instance, emotion. I used to look at emotion and being an emotional person as a total liability. I It was the thing I had to make up for. I had to hide it. And when I was going through my divorce and I didn't have enough energy to hide it anymore, I mean, I just, there was too much emotional overload to be able to pretend it wasn't there or, you know, avoid it. Um, that's when I actually started really excelling in my job because I became a human being 
And when I was able to tap into my emotion, not, you know, spread, like not cry in front of people necessarily, or, or like offload my emotional burden onto other people, but just be a human being, it gave everybody else permission to do the same thing. And it created connections that I had never had before because they were able to see me in a different, deeper light. And so I became the person in my job. I, I had badges at multiple companies headquarters because they trusted me so much that they were literally willing to like basically let me be an employee at, from Google. And, you know, certainly that's true. Like consultants do that and stuff. That's not really something that most salespeople get is badges. So what is a badge? Oh, sorry. Um, like the ability to enter as a, as though I were an employee, like a contract badge to go into a headquarters. Uh, um, I like I would have a Google badge, but I also had the, my own, the, you know, my, my client headquarter badges as well. And these were the global headquarters. So, and all of that was because I was creating emotional connections and they, people trusted me. And so, you know, there were a few other things like that communication, listening, um, being non-judgmental. Those were really, those are gifts for me. Um, and so when I started asking myself, what do I really want and what do I love? Then it was, what does the world need? And the world needs change. So by getting really clear on that, I was able to start taking baby steps. And this is by hand or by far the biggest recommendation I have from an action perspective. Most people don't take action because they are so afraid that the action they take is going to make is going to be the wrong step. They get paralyzed from this place of, but I don't know what to do next because they're so busy. And I was the same way. I was so busy trying to make sure that the step I was going to take was going to be perfect. And what if this is the wrong one and I've wasted time or, you know, I get three steps down the road and I realize, oh my God, I've just lost two years or whatever it is. Um, what I will, what I suggest and what I did is I took the pressure off, which was really hard. And I started saying, it's not about how do I take the right step? It's about how do I take any step? Because any step I take is going to give me information that will be valuable to my path. And so I started taking steps in different directions. I called them baby steps. I like signed up for coaching. I started looking for other jobs inside of Google. I started talking to people. I created network. Um, all of them. I, I even took photography classes and dance classes, all because I figured every single one of these is a step forward because otherwise all I was doing was staying stuck. And um, so all of those things really helped me build my confidence to feel closer to leaving. So this is really interesting. So as you left Google, you didn't have a clear plan of what you're going to do after that did you have like a huge pile of money in your bank account uh, or how like how did you f where did you get the uh, confidence from yeah well no i did not have a huge pile of money i did i had created because i i decided to leave at least a year or so before i actually left so i knew that i i when i left i wanted to be able to make decisions from a place of passion rather than a place of panic and so i had been really building a nest egg for quite a while you know saving money not selling stocks like all of the things i could do to make sure that i had a good nest egg built up um and i didn't have a plan because I, I was a strategic planner. I mean, you know, I'm not one to not have plans. <laughs> I had never done anything. You can't that. get that out completely. Yeah. I, I mean, that's literally what I did was I built strategic plans for this global partnership. So the idea of me leaving without a business plan was crazy, both to everybody else and kind of to me. But what I knew to be true was that if I wanted my life to feel different. If I really wanted to dramatically change how I showed up in life and the impact I was making, there was no way that I could take what I had always done and apply it immediately into this thing that was going to be so completely different than anything I'd ever known. All I'd ever really known was corporate. So if I was going to go build a business, I knew that the, the skills were going to have to come after I learned how to be. And so the doing was sort of had to come after the being. And I, I had had enough experiences in my life that had taught me that wherever I go, there I am. And if I wanted to feel different in my life, I was going to have to act different because if I tried to create a linear path, I was just going to end up feeling the exact same way I had felt at Google, which was 
empty and unfulfilled, but I was going to have a lot less money and slightly different scenery. (laughs) So I committed to holding really tightly to my vision and my passion were and holding very loosely to the plan of how it was going to come together. And I focused mostly on, um, what doing what felt good as opposed to what sounded good or, you know, what I thought I needed to be doing. And that was incredibly difficult because I kept having these, like, I'm not doing enough. How do I do more? I need to impress people. So that was hard. Yeah. And all that social pressure, that, I believe, yeah. like your friends yeah, back then, your husband and your parents or whoever, uh, all that social pressure, um, that's probably another thing that makes it harder to overcome. Oh. Everybody, you know, you don't leave the best company in the world to work for (laughs) to go do nothing. I mean, at least that's what I kept saying in my head because I kept thinking, well, I have to prove myself. I need to go out there and change the world because that's what I said. And because I had so much pressure, I I did exactly what I was saying earlier. I, I paralyzed myself from taking a step because I was like, well, what if the step I take isn't right? What if I make a fool of myself or fail or whatever? And this was after I had already left. So like, you know, these fears don't go away. (laughs) Um, They just, they become more familiar and they also, you know, they show up in different ways. So yes, I absolutely felt so much social pressure and that's where the art of undoing comes from. Um, And it was because when I left, I kept finding myself trying to like just do things to prove myself or add value. And what I realized is I didn't, I was, it was more like I was throwing things at the wall, trying to figure out what stuck or feeling like I need, I was adding value simply because I didn't know how valuable I was. And so I started saying that I was practicing the art of undoing, which by that I meant not doing, like literally just being because I was a doer. And so that was incredibly difficult for me just Mm -hmm. to be. And when I started practicing being, that's when I actually got a lot more clear and a lot more comfortable being in the fog. And that's where then the art of undoing started taking on a life of its own because it was about undoing the fears that keep us stuck and also learning how to be so that we can know what to do. And it wasn't until I put myself in temporary retirement and took the pressure off of myself that I actually, everything started coming together and I started really taking a lot of steps forward. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk then a little bit more about the art of undoing and what you're doing now? Yeah, of course. So the art of undoing is a proprietary practice that I developed because of all of the work that I had done and the research that I've done, obviously, subsequent Sorry, to what it. What means proprietary practice? Oh, I came up with it. I developed it. Okay. All right. <laughs> this yeah, isn't something that somebody else is. Right. Yeah, 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 got it. Um, so I, and that was hard for me actually, because I had never really created anything on my own. And I, you know, I had so much imposter syndrome stuff going on. Like, is this good enough to teach other people? And what I realized is this is what worked for me. If it can work for me, it probably can work for some other people. And so what it is, is it's a a practice of helping people start to undo the the stuff, the fears, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stuff that's keeping us stuck so that the changes that we want to make in our lives can really stick. And the reason is because so many of us want to make changes, whether it's weight loss or it's improving our marriage or it's changing careers or it's moving house or, you know, any, whatever it might be. And most of us have these big goals and we can't figure out why we can't actually make the change. We're smart. We're qualified. We've learned all the skills. We've taken all the tests. We've, you know, yeah. downloaded all the, the, the tips. Yeah. Um, so what's wrong with us? And it isn't until we can start to get to those deeper level things that are actually keeping us stuck that we can actually make the changes that we want to make. And so that's what I help people do is really start to, to identify, um, what their gifts are, uh, what they truly want, and also what's keeping them stuck so that they can amplify their impact in the world, make the changes and amplify their impact in the world. Mm-hmm. So so what is it that you're doing now on a daily or weekly basis? In terms of how I help and serve people or just in general? Um, I think both. If you want to okay. start with the first one, uh, how do you help and serve people? Yeah. I... I Everything I do, my goal is always to share authentic messages to help people 
change their lives, um, to get people thinking differently or to, you know, inspire, um, in, you know, some deeper questioning or action or motivation or inspiration. And so I do that in a number of ways. I take individual clients one-on-one. Um, I am a guest speaker, uh, in a lot of workshops and events. Um, obviously now they're virtual, not in person. And I'm also writing a book. So I'm about three quarters of the way through manuscript right oh, now. A lot of so alone time. Yes, Do you like the of, process of writing a book? Or? We're in the coronavirus, so there's a lot of uh, alone time. No anyway, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, the, the process of writing a book, it is the most challenging thing I've ever done because I am a, a lifelong people-pleasing perfectionist. Oh, so you so, want the book to be totally perfect. So writing bad first drafts, which is what they say you have to do, is really hard for me. And so there's a lot of, you know, spinning my wheels and I do it anyway, because this is really, really important. And one of the things that I've learned deeply and teach others is that we can learn how to have fear without letting fear have us. And I cannot allow my fear of perfectionism to keep me stuck um, or let it be the excuse that keeps me from moving, from doing this thing that I know is important. Regarding the book, do you have anybody like who guides you a little bit, who you can call on Friday evening being like, Hey, John, you know, I wrote uh, 50 pages. What do you think? Did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? How does it work? I am doing it myself right now because, because I'm a people pleaser, I I have a very high likelihood, my sort of default is to just listen to what everybody else says. And the thing that has been really important for me is to listen to what I believe and then listen to everybody else. I previously would listen to everybody else and totally forego whatever it is I thought. And so that's how I lost I, I lost who I was and what I wanted. And so that was really what this last couple of years have been about is, is recalibrating myself to what my center is, what my truth is, and then paying attention to what other people are saying. Um, so no, right now I'm not talking to people about what do you think? That said, I also know about myself. I don't do my best work alone. And so once I finish the manuscript, I am going to start working yeah. with an editor to help me take it from good to great, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, pretty cool. Um, so you said one-on-one, um, -on -one, public speaking, also at events, obviously currently um, um, uh, uh, online events. Mm -hmm. uh, what else do you do? How does like a typical week look like for you? Let's say before Corona. Yeah. Oh, well, it, you know, to be honest, my life isn't that much different looking pre and post Corona. <laughs> because It's I'm, the same I, for me, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always thought I was a total extrovert. Um, and I've always struggled because I like a lot of alone time and it, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who needs to be a social butterfly. I've always thought I should be, but it's never been really what's true for me. And so coronavirus has actually helped me embrace the fact that that's just that who I am. I'm, I'm an extrovert when I'm around people. I get a lot of energy from people, but I also need a lot of alone time. I don't need to be around big groups. It I, doesn't I think help that's me. totally. <laughs> I think that's totally normal. I actually meet a lot of people for whom that is uh, similar like that. Yeah. It's for me the same. I'm, yeah. yeah. So pre-corona, I'll just pretend that my kids, uh, this is this would be summertime because now my kids are at summer. Um, you know, there's a lot of spending time with my kids, playing outside, oh. doing, going on hikes. We are very big outdoor people. Yeah. Um, I work out almost every single day. I always really? get up early. Oh, yeah. When do you get up? Uh, I get up usually around 5.30 a.m. Oh, um, and I- Half an hour, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this morning I got up after six, so you probably beat me. I mean, <laughs> we're um, but the reason is because what I really learned is that a must have for me in my life, no matter what else is going on, is I have to have a morning ritual. Mm -hmm. I need to get up early and have time to reflect and be intentional and sort of wake up slowly before no matter what else is going on, no matter if I'm just like, it's a weekend and I'm home with my kids or I have meetings all day before the rest of life starts hitting me. Because it, if I don't have that time to really be proactive and intentional, then it feels like I'm dodging bullets all day long. How does your morning routine look like then? So you get up at 5, 4, uh, 5.30, uh, then go to the gym or do you have a basement where you do your exercises? No, my, my workout, I don't like to work out first thing in the morning, to be honest. I know that's what a lot of people's is. Oh, yeah. For me, I get up 
the reason I get out of bed every morning is because of coffee. No joke. <laughs> like I absolutely love coffee. And so I get very excited to get up and sit outside with a really good cup of coffee. And I always take my computer. It used to be that I would write journals um, on paper and I still do sometimes, but most days I journal and um, it's a good way for me to sort of figure out what I'm actually thinking and become aware of it because most of us don't have any idea what we're actually thinking until we see it on paper. And so it's a way for me to kind of clear the trash and also go deeper in not only what I'm thinking, but what my truths are. And so, um, and I usually set intentions and just kind of sit and be, relax. And then when my kids get up, then the day starts. Yeah. Like with them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, regarding um, back to what you're doing right now, how did you get your first client? So you're, you're leaving Google, you do um, a lot of work on yourself, the art of undoing, figuring out, trying a lot of things. How did you then get your first client, got paid, or and then like started, oh, this could actually be a business and so on? Well, I finished coaching training a few, several months before I actually left Google. So I was very clear that I wanted the way that I wanted to make a difference in people's lives was through coaching, speaking and writing. Like I always knew that it was just a matter of how exactly does that come together? And what does it look like? I didn't have a business plan for, I'm going to get my first five clients in these three ways by this time and all of that kind of stuff. Um, which is what of course a business plan would have looked like. So I did what most people don't do, which was I actually waited to get clients until after I left. So I didn't really know that this was a viable business <laughs> until after I left, which is not what most people recommend. Usually you start a side hustle before you actually make it into your full-time job. But I know myself well enough to know that if I if I gave myself an out, I would have taken it. I have to go 100% in. Like at home, if there's a plate of cookies, I'm 100% eating 100% of them. Like there's just, so like, there's really no gray area for me. And so I knew that if I was going to really make a run at this, I had to do it 100%. Um, and so I, how I got my first client uh, was actually a Facebook, or I'm sorry, an, a LinkedIn post. Oh. I accidentally had a viral post um, with my very, like probably literally my very first LinkedIn post ever because LinkedIn for me prior to becoming an entrepreneur was basically my virtual Rolodex. Like I, the only time I went on was just to connect with somebody from a business meeting or a conference. And then because it was so important for me to let my network know why I was leaving Google, that it wasn't because I hated it and what I was doing next, not as a publicity stunt, but because I just, I needed people to hear my truth. I posted this um, article on LinkedIn And it went all over the world and had hundreds of thousands of views and really? likes. And I was so unprepared What's the name for of the it. Article? It was uh, saying goodbye to Google or graduating from Google, something like that. Yeah. Graduating from Google. Right. I think it's on it's on Medium. It's now yeah. posted on my website as well, so you can read it there. But um, anyway, I totally whiffed. I mean, I did not, I was not prepared to like take advantage of the traffic. So it basically went nowhere. But enough people found me that it it built uh, a you know a small following, and so somebody reached out to me because they really related to what I said. The hardest part for me was not um, wasn't necessarily getting the client. It was how, how do I ask for the money for the client? Yes, yes, I can I can understand exactly. So how did you find that out? Did you? Did, I mean, okay, what would I do? I would look at other people who maybe are offering something similar something similar and then maybe see okay this is how much dates charge and then maybe i am around that level is that did you do it the same way or or did you do it a different way so when i was doing my coaching training this was of course a question that came up a lot and the answer that uh, somebody gave me that i thought was good was coaching is intended to help people you know, improve their lives and development, whatever. Um, the, a good sort of benchmark that she recommended was what would somebody pay for an hour long massage or an hour long sort of like personal, just self-care treatment, because this is self-care at the highest form when you're actually improving and transforming yourself. And so here in the U.S., a good massage is over a hundred dollars. So I knew that that was at least my baseline. Mm -hmm. At the same time, 
I didn't actually look around at what other people were doing. I looked at, I'm not starting from zero. I'm starting from 12 years of a Google experience. Yeah. I have a master's degree. I've taught college. I'm a trained coach. Like this isn't like I'm, you know, hanging Take a shingle up and I've never done this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So, you know, most people, I think when they're pivoting careers, they completely underestimate the true value of what they're bringing because they think they're starting fresh, but we're never starting fresh. Like these are all transferable skills. And basically every single thing I've done has become valuable in my coaching in some way, including literally what I taught in graduate school, I've actually been using for, you know, interview assistance and things like that. But for me, the thing that became the key for how do I charge was what is scary to ask for? Because what I knew, it would have been much easier for me to take a whole bunch of clients for less money than it would have been to have fewer clients and ask them for more money. Not because I didn't think I was valuable. It, I knew that I was I was going to add enough value. I'm an over deliverer anyway. But it would have been a lot of an like it wouldn't have been a hard conversation for me to say okay, hundred dollars an hour. It was a lot scarier for me to ask for what I actually believed I was worth. Um, and so that's what I leaned into was what is the scarier thing for me, not what is the easier thing? Because I knew that the only way I was actually going to get over that fear is by going straight toward it. So. That's that's how I set my prices. Was what's scary <laughs> to yeah. ask for. <laughs> okay, cool. And then did you? And and then and then you obviously got your first clients. That's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've continually been able to raise my prices. Um, you know, to your question of what if I got five thousand um, dollars um, a month or. 5,000 euro a month, uh, I would still do this work. And so I have to remind myself, I'm not doing this for free all the time because I really would, but I, it's, it's, it's how I make my living. And so, um, how much I just hours do you work then per week? How does, how does that look like? I, in terms of clients, I only take a limited number of clients yeah. because I do, I am, you know, very diversified in my portfolio. Yeah. Uh, so I, I usually take somewhere between eight and 10 clients and I'm, you, I'm almost always full. And those are, I see them every other week. So, you know, on average, I'm seeing five clients a week or so, which mm -hmm. is an hour and 15 minutes. So that's not very much. I'd say on average, I'm only really working four hours a day, mm -hmm. probably significantly less than I was at Google, mm -hmm. but feeling so much better about it. I also, you know, spend time posting or doing things on social networks, which- And writing uh, your book. And yeah, writing my book. But the way I tend to do that is like a lot of work it, in chunks. It's very, it's almost impossible for me to write with my kids around because I just, I, I'm too much like a like shiny penny syndrome. Uh, so you, you then take a week off and uh, and take that as a writing week. Um, well, usually it's when are my kids at their dad's house? Ah, <laughs> so, okay. Smart. Yes. When my children are at their dad's house and I can really focus, I need to get better at it. I need to f kind of uh, find a better routine, but I'm on book one. So by the time I get to book four, I'm sure I'll <laughs> 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 Yeah, <laughs> but this, this is what's working now. So I spent this weekend, um, basically my backside was completely numb from working all weekend on my book, <laughs> but it's work. It's, it's still happening. So it's working for me. And then events is like a one-off thing where you just need like a, a certain amount of preparation, but not much. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting to the point. Most speakers have, um, talks, keynotes that they've already written. And I always, I mean, just like most, I'm not implying that people don't just, or that they just take stuff off the shelf, but I always customize based on whatever the need is of the particular event. Um, it's been, you know, a little interesting trying to figure out how to na um, negotiate and navigate this new virtual world. Because as I mentioned, the extrovert side of me gets so much energy from being up in front of a group. That's what I love about public speaking. Mm -hmm. So to do it online isn't quite the same. Yep. And just like everybody else, I'm trying to find my way in this whole new world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, right now I would say I'm still trying to find my feet um, in in that in this forum. Yeah. So how? So you you said you have two kids, right? I do. Uh -huh. um, um, how do you balance work and being a mother of two kids? Um, I'm not yet a dad, but prepare me. Um, well. If you have strong, independent females like I do, then there's really nothing you can do to prepare yourself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I am so thrilled to be raising future leaders if they don't kill me first. <laughs> that is what I always say, because there are days where I'm not quite sure I'm going to make it through to the end of the day. But um, they, how do I balance it? I can't call it balance. I, I, I do the best I can in every single moment. I, I would say that I feel better now than I ever have before in terms of really being able to um, sort of lean into what makes the most sense at the time. And I can always, almost always prioritize my children. Not to say that I wasn't prioritizing them before, but it was a lot more challenging to do when I was you know, flying all over the world and all of that. Awesome. Also, your your life is much more flexible, I imagine. Exactly. So you can actually spend more time with them than if you would work at the big corporation like Google. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I had a, quite a bit of flexibility at Google, even, you know, well, obviously now they're everybody's working from home, but well before that was the norm, I was working from home a lot because I was a global leader. So I didn't, <laughs> being in an office in Chicago didn't matter nearly as much. Um, and yes, I would say in terms of balancing then versus balancing now, I it is so much easier for me to to just take off in the middle of the day to draw pictures with them, which is what we're going to do right after this and cool. to go on walks and things like that. Cool. And then, you know, I'll sit while we're all watching TV and I'll do some posts or, or, you know, reply to emails or whatever later. So it's, it's a give and take, but it feels a lot nicer than it ever has. Yeah. And your parent, uh, your children have a mother that is available and around. Not yeah. always working and stressy and busy and so on. You are working, but it's more integrated, I guess, more, I don't know, um, not separated so much. Yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons that I actually, it was really important for me to leave Google. Most people, for instance, don't leave their marriages for the, because of their kids. They're afraid that it's going to, you know, that they're going to sacrifice their kids' happiness. Most people don't leave their jobs because of their kids. I can't risk the future of my kids, you know, for or college funds and all that kind of stuff. It was actually because of my kids that I made both of those decisions. When it came to my marriage, I didn't want my children growing up with a model of a mother who was muted and um, unhappy. I didn't want my kids seeing a model of a marriage that was what my marriage was, and because they would likely emulate that. The same thing when it came to my career, I I was you know very successful and very satisfied in terms of at the surface level with my job. But I didn't want my children growing up believing that they had to choose between their own success and fulfillment or believing that they couldn't go after their dreams. So it was really important for my kids to be able to see me going after my dreams and making a run for it, even if I failed, because I wanted them to model that. And so that's mm -hmm. what they see now. So they get to see their mom drawing and they get to see their mom, you know, passionately running for her dreams. <laughs> yes. I think that's cool. That's a cool model yeah, to have as a mother. I think you mentioned it earlier um, already a little bit, but maybe you can give me an answer again to this. How do you make changes in life? Um, like, do you have any one specific advice on taking action? Okay. Well, when it so, like I said earlier, change. There are two types of changes we make. One is change that is like a technical, we just need to learn a technical skill. Like I am, for instance, a change I'm making is that a new, I know this is a long answer. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to host a live training next week for the first time. There is nothing fearful. There are like small fears that are staying in my way of being able to start that. But for the most part, the, the chain, the, the challenge between where I am and where I want to be is that I don't have the skills that I, I, I need to know new skills in order to be able to execute on that. The, the issue is most people look at all change in that way as I just need to get a new skill. Um, in reality, most change requires adaptation. It requires us to look at the world and be in the world differently. And so when it comes to change, we have to first look at, is this a change that just requires me building a new skill? Or is this, is this a change that requires me changing how I look at the world or how I am in the world? And so me leaving Google, for instance, if I decided I wanted to leave my job, I could get new skills on coaching, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be successful <laughs> at being, at, you know, becoming a coach. I have to adapt who I am in order to fit into this different lifestyle. Um, it's not just skills. And so the, 
the change, the first, the, the thing that I recommend to people is get honest with yourself. Is this something where you merely need to get new skills and that's what's standing in the way of you making this change? Or is it that you've got fears or other beliefs that are standing in your way that you need to adapt in order to be able to make these change? Uh-huh. Yeah. Does that make it, sense? Yes, but it's so difficult to get honest with yourself. Well, right. That's why I said step one is getting honest with yourself. Yeah. <laughs> And that starts to me with, what do I really want? And when we can answer that question, what do I really want? Most of us are focused, focusing most changes on what do we not want? I am trying to not be fat. I'm trying to, you know, like I'm losing weight because I don't want to be. Is this how you would uh, approach the one-on-one sessions that you have with clients? I start by what do you really want? Yeah. And do they um, give most- you an answer, a straight answer? Yes, I want to be exactly or I want to do exactly that. I would say probably most people would be like, well, I mean, you know, I think I would like to have this. Yeah, it's it's not like a, a question that is easy to answer. That's why it's really important to spend time with it. And that's also why I, I really recommend getting very intentional and honest with yourself. That's for me why the morning routine is so important because it's very easy for my brain to like fill in answers to the blanks, but that's not necessarily what's true. Those are usually limiting beliefs that are being filled in. What do I want? Well, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to live under a bridge. I don't want to be fat. I don't want to whatever. But to answer the question, what do I really want? Okay, I want to make an impact. Why is that important? Because I want to help people change their lives. Why is that important? So it's about continuing to go down until you get to those deeper level truths for yourself. When we can find the thing that is greater than the fear, that passion, that drive, that motivation, it becomes so much easier to stay motivated toward that change. But until we identify the thing that is greater than the fear and also the fear that is keeping us stuck, we just sit and spin. Mm-hmm. It just stays on the surface. We have to go deeper. I like that. If you now think back at um, where you started working at Google or maybe even before, what would you would have liked someone told you back then? I am almost a thousand percent positive that people told me all the things that I would tell myself, but I couldn't listen to them because Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't in the place I hadn't adapted enough to be able to actually take that in. Um, The thing that probably changed my life the most that I would say to myself, if I could really listen to it and hear it and take it in, is you are not your thoughts. I had no idea that I wasn't my thoughts. I thought I needed to take credit for everything that was going on in my head. And because it, after all, had gotten me to where I was successful and working at Google and all the other things. But it also is what was making me feel incredibly insecure, incredibly lonely, incredibly like an outsider, incredibly questioning of myself, um, like an imposter, all the other stuff. And so it wasn't until I realized I'm not my thoughts that I started to get some distance between myself and my thoughts so that I could start to see what was actually true for myself yeah so you're not your thoughts that is something i'm not my thoughts yeah Yeah. all right cool so uh, another question and i think that is one of the last questions i would like to ask it what drives you and if making the world is better a better place uh, is already taken Well, making the world a better place is is a good one. And it's one that we think, even if it's taken, we can all take it. Uh What drives me, the the thing that makes, the thing I can't not go do, the reason why I want to get out and change the world is because I firmly believe that we are our most impactful when we are our most authentic and that the world needs the unique impact that each of us can make. I, I believe that, most of us are looking at ourselves for what we're not and we're completely underestimating ourselves and our value and our contributions that we can make. And I really truly believe that each of us can change the world, but most of us absolutely cannot see that. And I want to help people see that they have unique things about them that no other person in the history of this world will ever, ever have. And if they don't find them, identify them, embrace them and share them, the world misses out and the world needs change. That's a cool answer. Maybe I should make a competition, like who gave the best answer? No, that would be bad because every answer is probably cool. But I like that one. Shall we do some quick fire questions? Sure. Yeah. What's your favorite book? Oh, 
I am very bad at the favorites. It's supposed game. to be a I quick fire question. <laughs> I know. Okay. Uh, the power of now. What is a good like life hack that you discovered? Letting go of guilt. What is success to you? Using my gifts to serve the greatest good. Cool. What are your three top habits? Hmm. I think I already said these. Uh, my morning ritual, yeah. drinking a ton of water, yes. and exercising regularly. Cool. What's your favorite hobby? Riding horses. Oh, nice. Really? That's cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's your biggest addiction? Is that coffee? It is a thousand percent coffee. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. And finally, how do you relax? Just being, sitting outside and not doing anything, just listening to the birds or the frogs or whatever noises are there. You are an amazing person, an amazing guest. Thank you very much, Erica. Where can people find you? If your audience would like to go deeper with me, they sure can they visit. Will. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, they can visit me at my website, ericagerdes.com. Hopefully you can include that in the show notes so people know how to spell it. And I'm also across all social media. Cool. All right. Thank you very much, Erica. Thank you so much. This was such a fun uh, conversation. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I put all of Erica's details in the show notes, or you can find it on her website, ericagerdes.com, or how I would say, ericagerdes.com, all one word. Also, please take your first action and subscribe and share this podcast. Or go to our website, ideasinspireaction.com, also all in one word, or you can find it in the show notes below. Cheers, guys, and take action.